Alrighty, Shemshem, not, not an easy story. However, very interesting, very interesting story. <coughs> I have to apologize. I have a little bit of a lingering cough from the, uh-oh, what's that? Did, you, did I get blurred or was it just by me? It got blurred all of a sudden. Okay. Okie dokie. All right, so um, we left off chapter, the end of chapter 14, where um, Shinshon has riddled this riddle, a strange riddle. And this riddle is a, it's an unfair riddle. And it wasn't, um, he wasn't intending for them to actually get the answer. The point of the riddle was to start up with them. And he actually gives them one clue. He says, um, if you could tell me the riddle, umatsatem, if you could find it. The only way to get this riddle is if you actually find the carcass of the lion with the beehive inside it. Otherwise it's impossible to know. So his wife betrays him. <coughs> and tells the story over. And basically they cheat. He gets very angry. And in order to pay back the 30 suits, he kills uh, 30 men in Ashkelon and gives them the suits from the dead bodies. A, um, Shimshon is, is, a, is a discussion. I mean, we started a discussion last time and the time before. We, we expected him to be like this angelic spiritual creature, the miracle birth, the, the barren mother, the angel and the Naziris and all of this together. And he should have been like some sort of angelic figure. And then we get this guy who's like, he wants to marry a pushy girl. His parents don't get it. His father goes along with it. His mother eventually goes along with it, but they don't get it. They're not happy. I just want to mention something, by the way, the expression me'az yatsam atok is till today an expression, you know, a lot of biblical expressions are used in modern Hebrew as like sophisticated, you know, it's like an English speaker would quote Shakespeare to show that you're like, you know, well-read. So me'az yatsam atok is used today as an expression for <coughs> if you, um, have a difficult thing and something good comes out of it. So there is this expression. In the meantime, we're told that Shimshon gets very angry and he leaves. And then we're told that his wife, right? The, the language is that she was to another, another man, one of the 30 groomsmen and so we have this weird thing. It's something wrong with my camera a little bit. Whoa. I need Mortify. Something I could do about it? It's not the, it's not the camera. You pushed the blur on your background effects by mistake. You think? Yes. How do I undo that? You go to background effects. You look, look at your... Uh, I you're can't find that. No, no. Yeah, you're good again. Okay. <laughs> Don't do anything, just talk. 
Okay, I'm going to share a screen so we can look at the Pesukim. Okay. All righty. So I usually like to show you first the this edition where you see that this is mostly narrative. It's actually all narrative. It's divided into two parts. I would have divided it further and we'll see as we go along. But if we go back to <coughs> the end of the previous parak, and I like to use this text best. Um, the spirit of God inspires him and he goes down to Ashkelon and he kills 30 men and he takes their, their suits and he gives them to the people of, who told the, the uh, riddle and then he goes home. Beit Avihu, goes home to his parents' house. I guess I actually want to mention something that I didn't mention last time, and that is his father is referred very often um, to as Avihu, as opposed to Aviv. And there is a Kabbalistic thought that Shimshon and his father are Gilgulim, they're um, uh, transmigrated souls, if that's the correct way to say it, of Nadav and Avihu. And the reason that uh, Shimshon is a Nazir is that it's a tikkun for Nazav and Avihu, who, <coughs> sorry about that, who um, apparently had a problem with drinking, that that might have been an issue. It's an interesting Kabbal Kabbalistic thing. I'm just pointing it out. Anyway, so he goes back home and he, when he leaves, so, When he leaves, he, he, he leaves the impression on his father-in-law and his wife that he's done with them. So Pesachah opens up a very big can of worms. And the wife of Shimshon was too, <coughs> which doesn't assign any blame. She was too one of the friends that he had, that had befriended him. So there were these 30 guys who were not really such good friends. But apparently she goes off with one of them. Now the question is, is that of her own volition? And the Abarbanel theorizes that yes, this is, she decided she's done with Shimshon, she doesn't want this guy and she's going over the other guy. She met him a few times. Maybe she knew him from youth and Shalom. So this is going to be a problem because actually they were married and um, this is what we call adultery. And nobody says anything and nobody does anything. So this is where we start chapter 15. And it was miyamim. Now miyamim could mean a short period of time, some days. Very often in the Tanakh, the word miyamim is used for one year. So a lot of time has elapsed. Um, it, it seems like a good amount of time and we've coming into the wheat harvest, which is going to be very significant in the story. And Shimshon remembers his wife and the Dasmikra says, perhaps there was a time of rejoicing over the, <coughs> over the, the harvest. So we have this situation where the, um, the 
emotions of Shimshon of calming down. He was very angry. He felt betrayed. He was betrayed. And his expression, he says, you, you plowed with my calf, has a uh, undertones of maybe he felt that she actually was unfaithful to him. But now he remembers her fondly and he wants to go back to her. And he takes along a goat. Now, by the way, a goat here is, is a gift of affection. And we see this, and there's another couple of things that, um, that we should mention. That when, when he goes out to Timnah, there is in the Tanakh, when we mention the same word, or the same name, we're meant to like hark back to similar stories. So there was a gentleman who went to Timnah and he wanted to give a go to a girl. And this is the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Yehuda and Tamar. So we're meant to like sort of connect in our minds, Shimshon from the tribe of Don and Yehuda and Tamar. And he brings her this goat as, as a mark of affection. And what happens is the father, he says, I want to go into my wife, into her room. And the father doesn't let him in. So this is very interesting because he's supposed to be Superman, right? So his father-in-law can stop him. But he says, no, 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 no. You, you don't want to go in there. And, um, and Shimshon, of course, is like, like, what's going on here? I bet, but you Amora Marti, he said, no sneita, but nena And it seems that one of the things that we get in, in this story is the, the casual immorality, degeneracy, depravity of these pushtim. It's a very strong contrast to, you know, especially the women. Like we look at Shimshon's mother, this big tzadikis, right? And then we see this Timna woman there. And she casually goes off with another man. It's no big deal. And the father of this thing, you know what? I, I didn't think you liked her anymore. I thought you didn't want her anymore. So I, I gave her to her to your friend. And the Barbanel says that the father really is taking the rap because he the Barbanel, I, I mentioned at the end of chapter 14, the Barbanel seems to think that she went off of her own volition. But the father said, No, no, I gave her away. So I'm like, don't be angry at her. Right. And then he says, okay. Her little sister's better than she is. Why don't you take the little sister? And actually, <laughs> there's some elements in the story that are actually quite funny. So as you know, so the, the, the different Mepharshim have different reasons. Why is she better? What makes her better? So one suggestion is that she's better looking. Right. And the other suggestion that she's more loyal. Right. And, uh, you know, she's a better bet. <coughs> so, you know, uh, the Malibu says she's, she's going to be loyal to you, not like her sister. I can't trust that girl. And um, so here, here we, we see what is Shimshon's purpose in the whole story. So Shimshon, we, we explained last time that Shimshon's whole idea back in chapter 14, in that famous Pasuk, whose parents did not know this is from God, right? That his parents, I'll show you that Pasuk, his parents didn't know that this was from God. And this is all part of his, here, they didn't know this whole story from Hashem. At this time, the Pushtim are ruling the Jews. 
So now what Shimsha is doing is finding a pretext to start up with them. <coughs> That's why the riddle, which um, it seems so strange, the whole riddle story, the whole riddle story is, as far as Shimshon is concerned, he wants to start up with the Plishti. He wants to fight with the Plishti because that's his role, right? The angel tells his mother, he will begin the salvation. And it was understood from there, from before he was born, that it's not going to be a full salvation. It's not the time. It's not going to happen. But he's going to be that salvation. Now, the way he operates, okay, is he's going to be infiltrating enemy territory. It's a whole different role than anything we've seen before. Previous judges, you know, they have an army, big, small, they go out, charge against the enemy with, you know, the fight and win, <coughs> Shem helps and all this. But now he is always working on his own. He's the archetype, the prototype of your uh, superhero who cannot reveal his true identity because that would make him uh, susceptible. That would make his people vulnerable. So therefore he takes on an alias. So you have this sort of, you know, uh, Superman story, whatever, think of him as like, you know, the Jewish Rambo, I don't know. This is the role that he is supposed to take. And this is all, any, anything is grist for the mill. Whatever can make him fight with the Plishtim is good. So now the riddle made it, the riddle was great. It was what he, in Shimshon's mind, is a win-win situation. If they get riddle, if they get the riddle, they cheated, he could be angry. If they don't get the riddle, they'll be angry, he'll fight with them. And now it's the girl. The girl goes off with another man. So he's got another great excuse to fight with them. And the father-in-law, the father-in-law is like, um, I'm like not in a good place. And this guy is kind of, uh, you know, a little bit dangerous and um, volatile. So maybe I should protect her by saying, well, I did it because I didn't understand. But I don't want him to be mad at me, so I'll tell him. Yeah, it was nothing personal. You could have the, the, the sister. He doesn't want Shimshon to be mad at him. He doesn't want the other guy to be mad at him. So he's he's got a really dangerous, uh, you know, tightrope here to walk. The father. He'll take the sister, but Shimshon he doesn't want the sister. He doesn't want the first girl. She's halachically usher to him anyway. He wants to fight. And now this is a great example. And so he says, I am totally clean. I'm totally justified if I mess you guys up. I'm going to totally justify. So I just want to mention that some of the lessons that we get from Shimshon are negative lessons. And I think it's important to bring out negative lessons as well. The story of the first marriage of Shimshon I say the first marriage because it seems later than marries the Lila. Um, the first lesson is how not, how not to have that kind of marriage. First of all, if she's disloyal, she's treacherous, that's bad. He's got a rotten temper, that's bad. He's completely tactless. You know, I didn't tell my parents, I should tell you. He's completely doesn't know how to talk to women. He's completely 
clueless with women, and we'll see this as the story goes on. He has no idea how to get along with women. It's completely clueless. And so we have the situation of what does a bad marriage look like? A, an unfaithfulness, a disloyalty, bad temper, misunderstandings, a lack of tact. So it's a negative lesson, but it's a lesson in, in how to improve your marriage. Be tactful, be kind, be loyal, and watch your temper. And if you already get angry, don't wait a year to make up. That's a little much. Okay, going on. Now Shimshon does something completely and utterly wacky. Um, <laughs> it's, it's almost unbelievable. So Shimshon goes and he captures 300 foxes and he puts torches, he like weaves torches into their tails and he, uh, he, he faces them. Rashi points out this is a hifil. He causes them the tails to face each other. That's the, the foxes are looking away from each other. Tails, tail. And he puts a torch in between the two tails. And he lights these torches on fire and he sends them out in the standing grain of the Philistines. And they burn up the stacks and the standing grain and the olive trees. Don't forget, we said at Pusik Olive that this is the time of the wheat harvest. So this is a very, very serious attack. If you can imagine 300 panicked foxes, okay, and I did actually go looking for some nice pictures for you foxes. They have very bushy tails. And if you wanna see how they move, I got that for you also. There is that. There. Now here, I think you, these are fox, fox puppies. So you have this picture of this animal that's got a fire on its tail, all right? The, the, the torch is there, the fire, and they know the fire is there. And they're in a panic. And they are going to be running madly all across all the, all the fields. So it's like, if you can picture fire running madly through all the Philistine fields and destroy everything. So there's a lot of strangeness about this. This is like a very, you know, where did he get this idea? Or what's the deal with the facts? So, the first shims say, and this is a chazal, that the fox walks backward. I, I honestly, I have to say, I looked, I, I really researched this. I tried to find a video of foxes walking backward and I couldn't find one. So I'm not sure. I do have this mental image of like them, of animals, but not only foxes that step backwards when they're nervous. But apparently the shot would be that two other animals with a torch in between them would run in opposite directions and drop the torch. Whereas the foxes kind of ran in sync. And so the torch remained 
burning up all the fields. The, the Baobim tries to find here symbolism, <coughs> which I think is very interesting. I just want to quote this Pasuk for you. In Mishle, it says, Okay, can a man put fire in his lap and not burn his clothes? And this is a metaphor in Mishle for an unfaithful um, wife. So according to the Malbi, the symbolism of the foxes and the fire in between them is showing that there is a tremendous um, strife that the Philistines put in between the couple. They took the, the friends, the friends are separated, the couple separated, they put fire in between. And there is actually some very interesting um, uh, chazals about how Ish and Isha, if they don't have Hashem between them, is fire. So there, there is this, this fire symbolism. On the other hand, I, I actually, another uh, one of my research projects, I've tried to find someone who addressed the question of Tsar Balei Chaim, and no one does. And no one does. So it must have been a directive from HaKadosh Baruch Hu that Shimshon is following, because I mean, where did he get this crazy idea? It must be, my only answer that I satisfy myself with is that he must be operating um, by the will of Hashem. Hashem must have inspired him to do this crazy stunt because otherwise <coughs> it would be um, difficult on so many levels. In addition, we have, again, like the 30 Philistines that he killed in Ashkelon. This is like um, collective punishment. This is a few people who wronged him and he is punishing a whole population. So the Chazal go back to the story of Shimon and Levi and the rape of Dina and the justification they gave there for what the uh, sons of Yaakov did to Shem is that when you have a clear cut violation of moral principles, the society should protest. The fact that this woman marries Shimshon and goes off two weeks later with another man should have, people should have punished her. There should have been some kind of outcry. And so Shimshon is saying, your whole society is perverse and corrupt and you deserve to be punished. So this is what he does. Now watch how his uh, plot works, okay? Pasuk Vav, after Pasuk Vav, Yomu him. Me asazot. Now pushed him, you know, they turn around, their crops are decimated. They don't know what to do. <coughs> Please forgive this club. <clears throat> I'm definitely getting better. My voice is weird. <clears throat> but what can I tell you? Sorry. Anyway, <clears throat> the pushed him say, who did this thing? And notice the beauty of this, okay? They say to each other, it's with Shimshon, the son-in-law of the Timna guy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The son-in-law of the Timna guy? It's not Shimshon the Jew. It's not Shimshon of, of Tzara or Eshterol or, or Shimshon of the tribe of Don. Shimshon, it was absolutely that crazy lunatic who married the Timna guy's daughter. And so we see that Shimshon's plan to keep 
the B'nai Israel safe is working because they, they see him, the Plishtim see him as a disaffected Jew. He's just, you know, a Jew that joined the Plishtim and he had a fight with the Plishtim. And so he's a crazy nut, a lunatic. And so he did all this damage. So who should we be angry with? The father-in-law and the, and the wife who treated him so badly that he acted like this. And we have to remember that in this corrupt and degenerate society, they don't say, well, how could you do that to us? Because we, you know, they say, oh, you know, if, if you're so mad about this, well, we're going to deal with it, right? Pasuk Bav. For those of you who are not familiar with this, when you see chatan or kala, it's true in modern Hebrew also, it's not just a bride agreement, it could also be son-in-law, daughter-in-law. So, you know, the first time you hear something, my kala, and you know, her kala is like 50-ish, or like, you know, got a million kids, that means her daughter-in-law. So Shimshon, the son-in-law of the Timni, ki ishto, because they took his wife. He took his wife. But now the Mary, when he gave her to someone else, to a friend. So the Pushtim do a horrible revenge on the Timna girl and her father, and they burn them both up. So this is, this is the way they behave. This is who they are. But again, you have to understand it's all grist for the mill. It's another way for Shimshon to retaliate. Look, they burnt up my erstwhile wife and her father. If you do like that, I'm going to get you one more time and then I'll stop. Which is like, <laughs> the before Shim like wonder, what is he, if you do like that? So <clears throat> what I understood what made the most sense to me of the different commentaries is that when he says, you have escalated it. I, I fought you financially. I did damage to your crops. You now are murderers. You murdered her and her father. So if we're opening up murder, I'm going to, I'm going to, you shouldn't have done that. If you wanted also that, and the freshman also suggests that if you wanted <coughs> to punish her, you should have punished her at the beginning. I punished her adequately, and now you're coming and doing more evil to me? Oh, I have another excuse to, like, you know, get you all. So this is his, uh, his uh, excuse to start up again. He says, you, you're not helping me. You're just making things worse. So, Pasichet. And he struck them, literally, shok. Shok is a calf and yarech is a thigh. He struck, little, this is how it sounds like, he struck them, calf on thigh, a tremendous blow, and he went down and he, he dwelt in the cleft of the rock at Etah. So before we get to where he goes, let's talk about shok al yarech. And one explanation is that you know, we're talking about the infantry and the cavalry and, you know, they use different parts of the leg. So we're talking about, he just struck the whole army there, the cavalry, the infantry, that's one explanation. And the other explanation is that they were all so, uh, is running in helter-skelter any old way just to escape this crazy man and how he strikes them all. And now there's been this tremendous 
revenge and uh, counter revenge and more revenge. And when he says, and this could be a, a definite lesson for us, I'll do one more revenge and then I'll stop. You're going to say when you're going to stop. You think you're going to kill a bunch of Christians and say, okay, well, now Shinshu's going to stop. So we're going to stop. So, one of the, the, again, sort of negative lesson that we learned here is that this is a cycle that never ends. We shouldn't think that, you know, revenge is anyway, also Minatora, but no one should think that the cycle of violence is going to solve anything because it's not. It's just going to escalate. Very, very difficult. Now, let's take a look at the next element in the story, which is extremely, extremely um, difficult part of the story. Shimshon now goes down to the Sifsela Etab. I have to show you on the map. I think this is the map. Yeah. So here we've been up until now in the Timna area. Sara and Ishtal. And now he goes to Etab. Now, if you can look at this map, you see that Dan is over here. Dan is on the coast. <clears throat> Dan is that whole Beit Shemesh area, for those of you who live out there. I, I, I was actually in that direction today. Shimshon Junction, Sarah and Eshtel, all these places. And my daughter told me, I went to Ikea, things for my new house. <laughs> my daughter told me I was right by Kever Don, but we didn't have time to go over there. So the Kever of Don is right there, apparently by the Beit Shemesh Ikea. One of these days, Bezrat Hashem, I'm going to go visit Kever Don. Bezrat Hashem. Now he goes to Eitam. Now Eitam is in Yehuda. Notice what's going on here. He's left the Plishti area and the Dun area. He's gone down to Yehuda. Now, let's not forget that Shimshon's mother is from the tribe of Yehuda. So he might have relatives there, but Shimshon is in a bad place. He's in a bad place because look what's happened. His parents are out of the picture. They're completely clueless. Either they passed away or they just like gave up. They don't know what to do with him. He's such a strange and, and, and unusual character and not what they wanted from their little miracle boy. And so the parents aren't in the picture. We don't hear about them anymore. His wife, gone. The Plishtim are mad at him. So now he, he doesn't know where to go exactly. And don't forget, his life is a very lonely life. He's keeping himself aloof from his people in order to protect them. So now he finds himself a place. The Dathmikor says, this place, a tam, over here, it's right near Brechot Shlomo. They're known to be springs of water there. So it's a good place to hide out. And he goes there to hide out because he's, he's, uh, he's um, wanted by the Philistines. Okay, so <clears throat> they, they've had enough of him. Right, all of the revenge and counter revenge, and now they just want to kill him. Okay, and they're they're quite murderous. They have no problem murdering people, so that's what they want. <coughs> so he's in this ifsele tam in the place of Yehuda, pasik tet vayalu plishtim vayachanubi Yehuda vayinat shubalachi, and they come to this area where Shimshon is, and they spread out at a place called Lechi. Now, very often in the Tanakh we have a situation where we're told the name of a place, and then later we find out why it's named that. So we have this situation with Lehi, okay? But this is where they go. They go looking for Shimshon, they go to Yehuda. Now, the people of Yehuda, uh, the Chazal say, 
there's been a lot of um, quiet in Yehuda for a very, very long time. And we're towards the end of Sefer Shoftim. The last uh, judge from Yehuda was the first. No, no, Ifzan also, Boaz. They've had a very peaceful situation in Yehuda. Down there in the south, you know, nobody's bothering them. The wars are in different places and they like their peace. Along comes Shimsha. And after him come the Philistines and they're spreading out all over. Now the people of Yehuda are like, what's going on? Why have you come up against us? Like we're good citizens, we pay our taxes, we don't make trouble, we know you're in charge, we're not fighting with you. Why are you here? <clears throat> and they say, and they said to them, we want to capture, now the word lasor, like asur, it means to bind, to tie up, to restrain. That's why things that are asur, we can't do. We want to bind Shimshon. We want to do to him what he did to us. Okay, we're out to get him. Now, if you notice, they're coming to the people of Yehuda, but what they say to the people of Yehuda, we don't really care about you guys. We want him. This is a personal thing. And again, it shows us that, that Shimshon's a plot, his toana is working. He and them are fighting. It's nothing to do with the Jews. But the Jews are freaked out. They're like, uh, uh, you know, what do we do here? Now, if you notice, Rashi has a very short comment here. We want to bind Shimshon. Rashi says, you bind him and you give him over to us. That's Rashi. Rashi says, we're serving you and I don't make any trouble. And they say, we want to tie up Shimshon. You tie him up and you give him to us. Now, this is a very difficult story in Jewish history. And it's something that uh, requires a little bit of um, discussion. Okay. First of all, how, how does this work halachically? Halachically, when the non-Jew comes to you and says, give us this person, are you allowed to do that? So I want to show you a couple of things here. So first of all, this is the Ramban, Hilchus Yisodia Torah, chapter five, uh, paragraph five. If the Gentiles tell a group of women, give us one of you and we will defile her. We want one of your girls to rape her, in other words. And if you don't give us one girl, we'll rape all of you. They should allow themselves to be attacked and not give over one person. This is the Ramba. And similarly, if us, uh, idol worshipers say, give, you, give us one of you and we will kill him. And if not, we'll kill all of you. And this is, this is so sad and tragic because this happened in Jewish history in many, many places, in many, many times. And most recently, I think, we can think about this. The Holocaust was full of these situations. If you give us this guy, or we're going to kill all of you. And the dilemmas and the difficulties, we cannot minimize. It's a horrible situation, right? 
they should all allow themselves to be killed and not give over one person from Israel. This is the Rambam. However, there's exceptions. If they specify, we want one person. Give us Shemsha, or we'll kill you all. If he deserved death, like Sheva ben Bechri, they should give him over. And um, we don't give this instruction, right? If he's not liable to death penalty, <coughs> they should not give him over. <coughs> so what's the Ramam saying? Ramam is saying that the story of Sheva ben Bechri, I'll give you a in one minute, Sheva ben Bichri was a rebel from the tribe of Binyamin, a relative of Shaul's, who after the, the rebellion of Absalom, he made a new rebellion. He goes, we don't want to be with David. So Yoav, David's Sartaba, goes after him. They come to this town. And, and they're about to destroy the whole town, burn it down. And it's the very smart woman sticks her head over it. The tower, and she says, "Like, what's the problem?" He said, "We want Sheva ben Bichri because he's a rebel against the king, and he deserves death." She says, "You know what? You don't have to kill all of us. You don't want to care of it." And she has this guy killed and thrown over, and shalom, and she saves the whole city. So, but Sheva ben Bichri was an active rebel of Mori ben Malchus. The question is, is Shimshon in this category? Now, let's look at another Rambam. Okay, this is Hilchus Rotzeach. Okay, and this is talking about uh, uh, Okay, what are we talking about here? If a person did a sin that deserves me, okay, that's not part of our story here. Right here starts here, Aval. But, the halacha of Rode is a very controversial one. Let me give you the, the outline of it so we can plug it into our story and try to figure it out. A Rode is a person who is out to kill or rape another Jew. And this Rode, okay, has not done anything yet. However, they're in danger of chasing someone with a knife and going to kill them. So basically, the halacha here, it's a complicated halacha, but the bottom line is, that we are obligated to do everything we can to stop this person from killing another Jew, or rape is a similar story, but, but what if we cannot stop this person? They're so bahits, they're so driven to, with this desire to kill this person, we can't stop them except by violence. So we should try, first of all, you know, if you're a sharpshooter, you could get them in the, in the leg, fine, but if not, you're obligated to actually kill the Rodef to prevent them. From, this is a strange halacha because they haven't done anything yet, but we're all obligated. Even children are obligated to stop a Rodef. This is a complicated halacha. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But in other words, when we look at the story of Shimshon, right, they're, they're the, the Yehuda are putting Shimshon into the category of a Rodef. What does that mean? A Rodef is a person who's endangering other Jews. If they don't give Shimshon to the Plishtim, what's gonna happen? The Plishtim will attack them. So they look at Shimshon and say, you know, you're a troublemaker. You're gonna cause us all to get killed. And so we have the ob obligation to give you over. And they're not asking for one of Yehuda. 
because that would be us according to the Rambam. But they're asking for Shimshon. Shimshon, according to Plishti law, is deserving of death. And if we don't get him, the threat is implied, we'll get you. Now, the, the Bnei Yehuda just, they don't want any trouble and they don't know what to do. So Pasekir Aleph, okay, uh, by the they come here, they understand that by this time, the reputation of Shimshon is so enormous for this one man, they collect 3,000 in order to capture him. 3,000 of Bnei Yehuda. And they say to Shimshon, You know the person are in charge here. What have you done here? And Shimshon answers very interestingly. I did to them what they did to me. It's unbelievable. This is not the truth. This is not the truth. He's not going to blow his cover. He could say to them, I'm fighting for you guys. My whole goal is to protect the Jewish people and to, to start up with the enemy. He doesn't say that. He makes it personal. They start up with me, I start with them. In other words, he doesn't want them to know what he is doing because that would, that would stop the purpose of it. The whole purpose of it is for him to be this, you know, you know, crazy loose cannon that the police don't know what to do with. And the doc points out that not only are they not associating him with the Jews, they don't have time. They don't have time to start up with the Jews and to make trouble for the Jews. They're so busy with this crazy shim show. So he's really protecting them and they're clueless, like the parents. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They look at him and they say, why are you making trouble? And this is historically something we've seen uh, at many, many cases. A, a number of names come to my mind, but I don't wanna get controversial and political, but we have many Jewish heroes who were um, looked at by the majority as troublemakers. You know, the underground before the state of Israel, like, why are you making trouble with the British? Or back in Germany, why are you making trouble with Germany? Why are you making trouble for us? And these people were Jewish heroes. And we have to open our minds. It's one of our lessons here. Open your minds. Akadosh Baruch who works in all different types of people with all different types of situations. And if this is this the vigilante archetype, this guy who has no rules, operates on his own, he does whatever, and he is really working for you. But you don't see it. You're clueless. The people of you who are clueless. And they come to him and he says, well, yeah, I'm just getting back at them for they, what they did to me. We came to tie you up. To give you over to the Plishtim. That's what we want to do with you. And if you can imagine Shimshon, how difficult this must be for him, even though it's part of his persona, he's got this whole mask, he doesn't wear a cape, but it's the same idea. Nobody should know the truth, but it must be very devastating for, for him to have his, his kinsmen, his, you know, it's his mother's tribe, it's Jews, and they're like saying, we want to give you over to the enemy. Just swear to me that you won't hurt me yourselves. This is very interesting, right? 
And <laughs> why is he saying this? And there's a, uh, the, the Medrash, the Mayam Loes, and also Das Mikra is pointing out, he doesn't want to fight with the Jews. So if they would attack him and he had to defend himself, he would have to attack other Jews. And the, the um, Me'am Loe suggests that his miraculous power was only good against enemies. Like he would not be able to attack Jews. But even if he would, he doesn't want to be put in that position. He says, guys, I'll, I'll go along with it. But you have to promise me that all you're doing is tying me up and that you're not going to hurt me. No, no, no. We will just tie you up. We'll tie you up and we'll give you over, but we're not going to kill you. And they tied him up with two new ropes. They brought him up from the rock. A low point in the story, a disappointing and tragic situation where one Jew gives over another Jew, where this group of Jews gives him over. And it's, it's a tragedy in Jewish history that we've seen in other cases. And um, very, very sad. But here Hashem has other plans, right? And they tie him up and he goes along with it. And now there's going to be a little bit of drama. I just want to point out here, another one of our, our, our lessons here is we, we saw Shimshon doing strange things. We saw him doing unkosher things. We saw him doing difficult things. But this is the real Shimshon. He allows himself to be tied up and given over to the enemies rather than endanger other Jews. And the uh, <coughs> Musar Nevi'im points out in the bracha that Yaakov gives to Dan, and I mentioned it last time, Dan will uh, judge his nation like one of the tribes of Israel. So different explanations for that um, possible. One of them is like the one, like God. How does Dan judge the people like God? It says in Hazinu, God is like the eagle puts its young on its wings so that if anyone attacks it from below, the young are protected. So this is, the, this is how God protects us, he protects us with himself in a certain sense. So that's what we see with Shimshon. He's willing to give himself over to be killed by the Philistines in order to protect other Jews. So when we, when we see the difficult size of Shimshon, we always have to remember his devotion to his people. And now Hashem comes through for him. Can you imagine they're shouting when they see him? They're so excited. The Jews gave him over. We got this guy. He's tied up. Now you might have noticed, you might not have noticed, that until this Pasuk, Hashem didn't appear in this chapter. And now Hashem appears. Shimshon's heroism and, and Mesiris Nefesh gives him this beautiful zchut and Hashem appears to him, he, he, Hashem manifests himself here, comes upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms were like flax that had been already burnt. It's just, and the bonds 
melted from on his hands. Like he just, as soon as he gets to the Philistines, they see him tied up, they see that the Jews comply, and, and then they see him go, the, the power that emanates from Shimshon is now on this full display. And he sees the jawbone of a donkey, a fresh one, because a, an old bone would be brittle. He takes a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he grabs it, sends his hand and grabs it, and he strikes a thousand men. He kills a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And you might have heard this before. This is such an uh, um, iconic story, the jawbone of the donkey. <coughs> There's a lot to say about the jawbone of the donkey. But um, Hazal a little bit uh, critical here. They say, you know what, Shushan, you could have done it with your bare hands. Like with the lion, with the shokhe, you didn't need this unclean animal thing. Like, he, you know, what are you dealing with the Toma for? Again, is that that subtle, why, like why? Why with the Toma Dika thing? But anyway, he gets this beautiful uh, miracle that Hashem gives him. And um, he kills a thousand men. And uh, there is, I actually did hear very, very weird Medrash that I haven't quite sorted out in my brain, but I just want to tell it over because it's so weird that it was the jawbone of Bilam's donkey. I have to sort that out because the timing is off and it's a, it's a fresh dead donkey, but I just, I liked it. I liked it, the jawbone of Bilam, like the, the jawbone of that man, a donkey. Okay, anyway, so we're going on. Pasik Tetzayim, a Yom Shimshon, and Shimshon gets excited. Like he looks at these, these dead people. Now, it works in Hebrew. It's a poem, right? With the jawbone of the donkey. Now, chamor chamor tayim, Chazal interpret this as piles. Because we see that in Mitzrayim, like piles of dead frogs, right? And it's lashon lashon, which is impossible to translate. It's like a pun. It's like a alliteration. With the jawbone of the donkey, I struck a thousand men. And this is like, he's struck by the amazing thing. He took this jawbone of a donkey. He killed that. He's like, whoa, look at this. Okay, now what's the problem with that comment? All right, what's the problem? Okay, we saw it, Pasuk Yudalid. And now he's saying, I killed a thousand men. Okay, so... Another lesson for us to always remember is that when we say, this is what it says in Devarim, never say, my power and the strength of my hand, got me all this fill in the blank, wealth, power. Right? But you have to thank Hashem. Hashem is the one who gives you koach to do chayel. So don't stand there saying, I can't believe I killed a thousand men with a job under the donkey. That is quite amazing. But you have to always remember, okay, Shimshon is very modest also now. We don't see him puffing himself off. He doesn't tell his parents about the lion. He doesn't tell the Bnei Yehuda who he is. But all of a sudden he's like, this is like, wow, whoa, right? And this is really off and Hashem is not so happy with him. 
after he makes his little poem, he cast the jawbone from his hand, and he called the place Ramat Lefi, which literally means jawbone heights. I like that. Jawbone heights. It has a certain ring to it. Wouldn't you like to live in jawbone heights? In any case, we saw previously that they came to Lehi, and that's why it's called Lehi, because of the jawbone. Now, Yudchet, all of a sudden, the whole picture changes. He became very thirsty. Uh, he worked pretty hard there. It's a really um, unbelievable contrast to the power that he had before. Right? He, he's so strong. And then all of a sudden, God pulls away the power. And he's so thirsty, and there's no water, and he's literally dying of thirst. This incredibly powerful human being cannot find water and bring it to his mouth. And he knows, he immediately connects his thirst and his danger with his previous uh, sin of taking credit for himself for this great miracle. And he right away kind of says, Hashem, listen, Hashem, really, I, I, you have given your servant this great salvation. I consider myself your servant. I consider this salvation. And now, if I die of thirst, I will fall into the hands of the Arilim. Now, when a Jew calls a non-Jew an Aril, an uncircumcised individual, that's like the biggest put down. A put down, right? You're an Aril, you are uncircumcised. And so we see that the real Shimshon, when we take away the mask, the persona that he's put up, the real Shimshon sees himself as a servant of God. He sees himself as talking to God, close to God. He sees a salvationist from God. And he sees the Pushtim as the uncircumcised enemy. And this, God hears. God hears this, right? And God split the, the socket of the jawbone, right? The jawbone has like two parts and it opens up, right? And out of that socket, water comes out of the jawbone of a donkey, and he drank, and his spirit came back to him and he revived, he lived again. Now, I just want to point out that this is the second time that we're seeing food, life-giving food coming out of an unclean animal. Okay, so again, there's this musr for Shimshon. You really you're doing good things, you're bringing life, but you're taking it from unclean places. It's not so good, there's a problem. But this is his role, this is how God set him up. This is like, you know, we look at it, we say, well, that's with this weird story, but this is how Kodesh who set up this system. Every shofar is different. Shimshon is the most extremely different. And therefore, this spring that sprouted 
through the broken, uh, through the jawbone of that donkey that splits, right? It was called Eina Kore. Eina is the same like uh, Ma'ayan. Every time you see Ein Gedi, Ein this, Ein that, it means a spring. The spring of the caller that is in this place, Lehi, until today, which usually means until the writing of the book. Now, Eina Kore, the, the spring of the caller, that's one situation. So the, the Bible suggests it also means that God's eye, the ayin, is on the Kore, the one who called him, which is also a very uh, beautiful thought. Because we say in Ashrei, Tarov Hashem, we have to remember always that a Baruch is close to the people who call him. And that's one of our main, main lessons here. Shimshon is now bereft of everything. He hasn't, his parents are out of the picture. His wife has gone a long way. His people have given him over to the enemy. The Philistines, the one of, they just want to kill him. And he's left with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. He's left with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. So that's, that's the Koray. That's when he turns to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. He has, he has a, a lonely and sad life, but he's, he's doing great things for God. We always have to remember that. I know we, we tend to like last week, we saw the bad things and we condemned him. But if we sum this all up, he's, he's a tremendous hero. Besides the, the power that he has, the closest to God, the Naziris that up until now he's maintaining the Naziris is a very, very difficult thing. And he's also modest, except for this one, I think, breach of modesty here. He's very, very careful to guard the Jewish people, to take care of them, even at the risk of his own life. So you, you have to see the good parts of him, the beautiful um, connection to Kaddish Baruch Hu. and then you start understanding why Yaakov Avinu and seeing what Shimshon is doing is saying well you know he should have been Mashiach uh, first but not the last of the characters interesting characters who who had that possibility that didn't work out and the parak ends with a strange Shana, and he judged Israel the days of the Philistines for 20 years now, since we have a whole nother chapter, chapter 16, in which we meet the famous, infamous, I should say, Delila, right? So what's going on here that we're sort of, this is how we sum up the judge's life. And he judged Israel for so many years. So it seems as if from the comments of the different Mepharshim, that this is kind of the high point of his life. And after here, it's gonna go downhill. And uh, it's going to be to end in a difficult way. So we're saying, okay, this, he really was a judge. He judged Israel, he saved Israel for 20 years, but it was in the time of the Philistines. It wasn't a full Yeshua, it wasn't a full um, salvation because the Philistines were really in charge. So uh, this is how we end our third chapter in the story of Shimshon.